Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Joseph Bondi Demony. He's an associate professor, uh, part of the microbiology and immunology department at UCSF. And we're going to talk about uh, CRISPR-Cas9 or CRISPR-Cas in general, that mechanism, and see how that relates to the phages that prey upon uh, bacteria. So, Joseph, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so tell me about your research in your own words, uh, then we'll go into CRISPR-Cas and what it does. Great. Yeah. Um, my lab focuses on understanding how bacteria deal with their predators. So we study viruses that infect bacteria. They're called phages, like you said, bacteriophages or bacteria eaters. Uh, we call them just phages for short. Uh, these, these are viruses that, that don't infect humans, but are in our body, on our body, and everywhere one looks. So their bacteria are constantly being threatened for their lives. And since bacteria are single-celled organisms, their cell dies and they die. So there are a lot of ways that bacteria have to protect themselves from these sorts of infections. One of them is CRISPR, but there are many others. So we study the different ways that bacteria protect themselves from phages. And then we also study the counter evolution to understand how phages battle back against uh, bacterial immune processes. So what is the CRISPR caste system and how does it play into this uh, drama? Yeah, CRISPR as, a, as an immune system was really just discovered now about 13 years ago. So it's sort of one of the newer players on the, on the scene. Um, in the 60s, the 1960s was when the first bacterial immune systems were discovered and, and they are called restriction enzymes and became really important for molecular biology and also for people like me who are interested in how bacteria and phages battle. When, uh, when CRISPR was discovered and functionally characterized in 2007, what it meant for the world of phage and bacteria was that bacteria actually have a way to sort of take a mugshot of previous invaders by, by stealing a small fragment of DNA from the virus, from the phage. That DNA is then stored in the bacterial genome, and the, that's the CRISPR system. The, the acronym CRISPR describes this little region in the bacterial DNA where it stores these mugshots, where it stores little snippets of phage DNA. And then it turns those into RNA, and that RNA is a guide molecule that guides some of the CRISPR proteins called Cas proteins, like Cas9, that then guides the Cas protein to the phage if it tries to come again. So it's sort of like a, a convenience store with a picture of a you know a person who who you know steals steals chips from your aisle every time they come in that you recognize them, and you know the first time maybe they got away with it, but you got your you got their picture. And next time they, they try to invade, you're, you're ready, to, ready to go. So that CRISPR is actually the first and only uh, system of bacteria that we call adaptive, much like our antibody system where we see a pathogen and we might get sick, but we make antibodies for the next time. That's sort of how we think of CRISPR and bacteria because it has this ability to adapt. How does the bacteria get a sample of the phage genetic material? Is it, uh, can an infected bacteria you know, fight back and in the process grab some of the phage uh, genetic material, or where does think, this happen? I think there's sort of two answers to that. One is, uh, is I think what you were just suggesting at the end there, that maybe bacteria have 
If they had another immune system, let's say that stops phage in a different way, and then CRISPR would have time to steal this little piece of DNA and put it into its own genome. But unfortunately, that uh, doesn't really happen quickly enough, like I think you were implying, for, for the bacteria to respond during that infection. It really is it for the next time. And so what, what is thought is that during a, a naive infection where the bacteria haven't seen this phage before, that the phage typically wins that battle. But in a rare instance, there is a defective phage that injects its DNA but doesn't really replicate, doesn't kill the bacteria. So the CRISPR system has time to steal that little fragment of DNA. And now it's immunized, if you will. It's received a vaccine from an attenuated or defective virus, which is also how we vaccinate ourselves. That's sort of the dogma that, that if the phage stalls or makes a mistake, then CRISPR has time. And now that bacterium is going to be really fit and really able to deal with that phage upon subsequent exposure. You know, there's tons of phage out there. There's tons of bacteria. Could you set up a situation where you have millions of naive ones and watch all the infections and see what happens? Yeah, that's that's sort of how uh, people who work on this process uh, study it. it uh, they, st- they tend to start with bacteria that are naive and they infect with phage and they watch, in, you know, the, this new space, we call them spacer sequences, the new mugshots start to appear in the bacterial DNA. And it's experimentally very easy because those bacteria become resistant to phage. So you can then find them as survivors that, that survived this, this phage epidemic, essentially, in a test tube. And, and uh, you know, but if you add a different phage, like you're suggesting there's so much phage diversity, well, then the bacteria would be naive to those. You know, it would have adapted to phage A, but not be poised for phage B. And the whole thing will have to happen again from scratch, where, again, most bacteria die and some make it, make it out at the end. Um, but this is how we've studied viruses forever. You know, even in human cells or in, in viruses of bacteria, we've always done these sorts of selection experiments where we mix, you know, a phage or a virus and a host together, and we ask, how did the host survive? Every time we do these experiments, we get different answers, which is really exciting. Depending on the virus and depending on the host, you find all these different immune responses that different organisms have. So it's, it's always a fun experiment to do. If you're saying it's dogma, that kind of leads me to believe that it has not been, you know, quantified how it happens. It's just kind of like, oh, well, this is probably how it happens. But oh, I do you see. know if it actually has been observed? The, so the, for the defective phage idea, is that what you're asking about? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. So I mean, there's a really nice paper from Sylvain Moineau, who is a leader in the CRISPR field in Quebec City, Canada. And they, they showed a number of years ago in a really nice paper that, Yes, in fact, that the, they could increase the number of defective phages by using UV light to inactivate their ability to replicate, and and more spacers were acquired. And so the the idea was that the you know the more defective phages there are in the population, the more infections there are that don't go anywhere, and that leads to to the sitting duck DNA acquiring new CRISPR memory. They also showed that they could combine it with another immune system called restriction that would that would also target the phage. And, and help spacer acquisition as well. So it, it does seem like there is some evidence for, for this idea. And it kind of has to be something like this, because otherwise the, the initial infection is just far too fast. You know, a phage can be in and out in a half an hour before CRISPR really has time to respond. So it's, it, it really does function in an adaptive way, and it can't do too much at first glance. I know that bacteria do quorum sensing. Part of that quorum sensing is evaluating molecules extracellularly. But with plasmids, they mm. seem to be able to inform each other as well. So if bacteria, let's say, are in biofilm formation, uh-huh. part of the biofilm starts to be exposed to you know, a given phage, mm-hmm. I would think that the biofilm can inform the rest of the biofilm. And they may not just need to rely on this accidental uh, 
I see. You know, improper phage. I mean, one gets infected. It may take time for that phage to take over that bacteria and kill it. But maybe in the meantime, there's some signaling coming out that tell the yeah. other bacteria, all right, prepare. That's a very cool idea. It's something we're really interested in in the lab. And there's been a couple of recent exciting papers in this area. We're working on quorum sensing in response to phage infection. And you're absolutely right. Bacteria can, can change their gene expression during phage infection. And there's not a, a really solid example yet of, of what you're suggesting, which is sort of like a bacterial cytokine, like we have in human cells, where if a cell is infected with a virus, it will signal to the immune system. I totally agree that that probably happens. And in a biofilm is a great situation because they're in such close proximity. There was a beautiful paper recently from Rotom Sorex lab that showed that the phages actually can produce quorum sensing molecules and talk to each other during infection, which is pretty amazing. So absolutely, oh, yeah. they stumbled on that by mistake when they were looking for exactly what you propose, which is a bacteria that's infected and, and signals. But let's assume that does happen. I think it's a great idea. What can the neighboring bacteria do? Well, they can turn on these defense systems, but they can't manufacture a spacer sequence that they don't have exposure to, right? So for CRISPR immunity that relies on this new memory, this mugshot that allows them to produce that guide RNA molecule, those cells could absolutely turn themselves into being more primed for infection, like let's say over upregulating the CRISPR genes or upregulating other defenses or downregulating receptors and things that the phage needs. But when it comes to CRISPR, it can only do so much. It can only make more of these proteins. It can't, that could help it acquire a new spacer a little faster but it can't, you know, create that sequence unless it gets it from its neighbor somehow, which is, which is possible. So it really still needs well, that, new, that new spacer sequence. Well, if there's a bacteria that's, you know, it's in the process of infection, you know, yeah. the phage is multiplying inside of it. If this bacteria normally sends out plasmids pretty regularly, but if the virus is in there replicating, it may not be, it may let out either accidentally or just as the normal course of business, the bacteria lets out plasmids all the time. So some of the newly packaged, you know, virions or some of the uh, the raw nucleotide material, the building blocks, get put into plasmids either deliberately or accidentally. Uh-huh. And that's happening constantly. That would provide like an unintentional or intentional signaling to other bacteria. And then they could change their gene expression and take action. And they yeah, might actually even have that raw material. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's possible for for the DNA to move either by a plasmid conjugation or, or through naked DNA or even through phage transduction. There are bacterial systems that, that have ways to sort of hijack the phage particle and use it to transfer its own DNA around. And the Marafini lab at Rockefeller has actually shown that CRISPR arrays, CRISPR systems can uh, jump into phages and, and use the phage to move the immune system around. So the phage is actually carrying you know, an, an immune system that will then destroy it, which is pretty cool. So you're absolutely right that not just quorum sensing molecules could signal, but you could have actual nucleic acid transfer that would prime or enable uh, neighbors to be immune or to at least have a better immune system. I, I think that those sorts of dynamics are, are really, really interesting and, and probably do mimic some uh, some natural processes and biofilms. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't even know the, the nature of the biofilm, but you know, perhaps the bacteria have, you know, semi-permanent pili that are connecting them to make the biofilm. So maybe there's direct channels that uh, it's not even one bacteria anymore in a biofilm. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's it's kind of an interconnected group of uh, bacterial cells. So communication can happen pretty freely. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree. I think, I think uh, 
I think, I think the communication between microbes, either mediated by microbe or by phage or, uh, you know, DNA transfer, these are all probably have an impact on immunity. Unfortunately, they're, they're a little tricky to study sometimes and because biofilms especially or, or quiescent cells tend to be more phage resistant anyways. So we have a, we have a pretty hard time studying that. And also biofilms are, are very, um, I don't know, heterogeneous and labs that work on biofilms all work on different kinds of biofilms and it can be hard to compare them. So a lot of people love planktonic culture where bacteria are growing happily in rich media at 37 degrees because it's easy um, and it may or it doesn't necessarily always reflect the real world, but sometimes modeling, uh, uh, you know, stationary cells that are living in a community is actually very hard to do that. that. So I think that's why you see a bias towards um, more active replicating cells in most papers. So how was uh, CRISPR-Cas first discovered? That's a uh, complicated question now, especially now that there's been uh, uh, such high profile recognition for the CRISPR as a tool. You know, I, I think most people describe the, the initial report of something that was a CRISPR system, although the authors didn't know it, it was in an E. coli bacterium uh, genome paper uh, dating back to the late 80s from a group in Japan. I, I, think, I think most people consider that the actual discovery and hypothesis that this may be an immune system is often attributed to uh, a man in Spain named Francisco Mojica, who was sequencing various bacteria and archaea he was interested in sequencing the old-fashioned way and looking at their DNA and saw these repeat sequences and spent a long time trying to figure out what, what this little region of the bacterial DNA was. And only when people started to sequence more plasmids and phages and viruses did he have the realization that, um, you know, these spacer sequences matched viruses and therefore might be some sort of immune system. In the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, there was just a, a massive number of really important contributions from from a handful of labs that, that then took this into the into showing you know that it could actually work and that it's small RNA guided and it's cutting DNA and then that really exploded from there. How is CRISPR Cas? I don't know. Is it, is it cultured? Like how is it obtained from bacteria and duplicated in useful amounts and then used? Yeah. So the the um, you know, the proof came in 2007 that, that the uh, CRISPR system could acquire new new pieces of information from the bacteriophage, and that that phage could uh, that phage would then be targeted. It took a few years there from there to to piece it together down to its minimal parts. So it, it turned out for at least one kind of CRISPR system, which we now know of as Cas9, that it really just needed one protein, Cas9, and two pieces of RNA that could actually be stuck together into one piece of RNA. And this was, this was work that was led mostly by, by Doudna and Charpentier, who won the Nobel Prize for it. Uh, you know, they could reduce it down to one protein and one RNA and show that it could work in a test tube, which was a, a seminal paper in 2012. From there on, it became really straightforward to produce amounts of it sufficient for anything you really wanted. So if it meant you wanted to use it in bacteria for phage, we can just express it there either natively or from plasmids. If you want material to do things in the lab, you can purify the protein. And now for therapeutic applications in, in humans where CRISPR can be used to cut DNA, it's being produced and delivered in, in myriad ways. So it, it's really become, because it's one protein and one RNA, become something that can be introduced to almost uh, any cell or organism. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And what is CRISPR-Cas9 versus CRISPR-Cas in general? Like how many different sure. uh, forms of CRISPR-Cas are there? 
Yeah, at a very high level, there are six types of CRISPR-Cas systems. Cas9 is one type, it's type 2. There's a ton of nomenclature and jargon that the experts love to, to nerd out about, but the Cas9 is just one type. It's not the most common type, but it was sort of the earliest one found that was the most simple. Uh, the, the first few papers covered types 1, 2, and 3, and type 1 is the most common uh, in the world, sort of in bacterial DNA anyways, of what's been looked at. And now we realize there are six different types uh, that are currently defined. That's probably going to increase. But Cas9 is the signature gene of that system. And there are now, you know, there are many Cas proteins and many flavors of them. And that's so diverse because presumably it's under such strong selection and evolutionary pressure from phages that it tries to target. And we also think in my lab, we study a lot of phage proteins that we call anti-CRISPRs that antagonize or interact with CRISPR and turn it off. And we think that probably drives a lot of this diversity, too, that, that the CRISPR systems need to be so diverse. And this is true for almost every immune system that it's, it's got to kind of keep up and it's got to run really fast to stay in the same place. So there's a lot of pressure for diversity here. Different types of CRISPR-Cas uh, function very differently than CRISPR-Cas9? Yes and no. So at a, at a high level, they're all so very similar. They're all CRISPR systems, meaning they all use some sort of DNA array that contains these mugshots, these, these sequences that are resembling or matching phages and plasmids, they all turn that into RNA and use that as an RNA guide. Where they start to differ is, is what are the proteins that take that RNA, that process that RNA, that guide, that, that hold on to it to search for the target, whether that target is DNA or RNA, and how it cuts those targets, that's all incredibly diverse. But at a very high level, they're all called CRISPR because they all come from this sort of uh, built-up mugshot uh, collection and turn them into RNA and use that as a guide. So in that sense, they're, they're similar. Interestingly, though, they, the proteins that make these different systems work have evolved independently. And so many times we, we talk about how CRISPR has sort of arisen in evolutionary time in different cast proteins that make it work have come from different origins. The only th- proteins that all of these systems have in common are the ones that actually build this uh, array of spacer sequences, the, the mugshot collection. The proteins that build them are in every CRISPR system, more or less, but the proteins that execute the function downstream of that are, are highly diverse. What particular uses is uh, CRISPR-Cas being used for right now? I know the uses are just probably exploding, but you know, yeah. what are some of the early uses that were successful? What was done? Yeah, the, I would say there were two really big things right out the gate that happened in, around 2013. That one was putting these systems, Cas9 in particular, into mammalian cells, human cells in the lab, and showing what, ha- what had been done in a much harder way before, which was that you, if you cut DNA, you can change the sequence at that region much more easily than if you don't cut it. This was known for years with different enzymes. What Cas9 enabled people to do is to very simply design a guide RNA that's easily changed to target it to any region of the DNA and actually intentionally cut and the DNA gets repaired and makes mutations. So the ability to tar- make targeted mutations in the human genome in, in a cell, in a dish, in a lab, that was the first really big, you know, sort of more, maybe more human-centric application that then really took over. By the end of 2013, this had been done in, in so many labs and had really exploded. And that fundamentally is what the ability to do that is what the Nobel Prize in Chemistry recognized. And that was really for the tool that the world of research. The other big thing that it did is some researchers actually here, both at UC Berkeley and UCSF, led, led by Stanley Chi, 
turn the system into a programmable cutting system, but a programmable binding system where now Cas9 is not cutting, it's basically blunted scissors. It can't cut, but it can still bind to DNA. And once you can easily and programmably bind proteins to DNA or RNA now, you can recruit different proteins and do different experiments. And so as an experimental tool, 2013 was a, a huge year of explosion for you know papers that showed how you could mutate human DNA specifically, and also how you could change gene expression with this dead, so-called dead Cas9 that, that just recruits uh, proteins. From there, there's been a huge long list of applications and therapeutic ideas, but those, in my mind, those were the first two that really, really exploded. Are there mechanisms by which um, bacteria are changed by their phages? You know, like uh, I guess in Vibrio, a certain phage has to give it certain material, and then it turns it pathogenic to people right. and make cholera. Like, what, what are some of the other methods by which it seems like maybe the phage initiates a change in the immunity, or the immune status yeah. of the bacteria versus the cats? Absolutely. This was the, the entire focus of my PhD in a, in a different bacterium called Pseudomonas. I, I worked a lot on how phages could integrate in the bacterial DNA and change them for the better or for the worse. Yeah, the Vibrio example is probably the most famous, but there is no short list of toxins and virulence proteins that bacteria pick up from phages, and that makes that bacteria more deadly to us. There, there are many other examples that are maybe less toxin or less human-focused, but I've spent a lot of time studying ways that phages modulate uh, the sensitivity of their bacterium to other phages. And that's actually how I got started in the CRISPR world very serendipitously, as I was studying how these integrating prophages could change their host. And this generally is a phrase called lysogenic conversion, where the, the lysogen that forms when the prophage integrates is converted to some new phenotype. And in addition to finding integrated phages that made their host more resistant to their other phages, I also found examples that made the, these other phages more sensitive, and it turned out that that was turning off the CRISPR system, and that's how I started working on CRISPR. But yeah, we, we've studied quite a few mechanisms by which integrated phages modulate uh, sensitivity to other phages, usually by changing the cell surface in some way and preventing the, its competitor phages from even getting in. You know, it's weird. In a bacteriophage interaction, who is calling, you know, who's <laughs> running the show there? Right, I mean, right. Like, like you've shown that bacteria through CRISPR-Cas seem to be the one in charge and using the phage for their own ends, but the phage is trying to do the same thing. And in other cases, it seems clear that the phage is the one that's that's running the show and changing the bacteria. So it's, I don't know, what do you think about that interaction? Does that does that puzzle you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, for the prophage question, it's interesting because they are really now uh, symbiotic elements that that have a vested interest in their host surviving. You know, integrated prophages are probably pretty happy to be integrated with their host because it, it, you know, when the bacteria replicates, so does the phage. And if the bacteria survives for a long time, so does the phage. But they have great mechanisms to, to get, out of, get out of dodge if the bacteria is a sinking ship. Phages know that and they induce and make more of themselves and leave. So that really, I think the phages are the dominant. <laughs> I'd like to think phages are really the, the calling the shots here, even though they're not alive, which is sort of an amazing way to think of viruses as we are currently being totally attacked uh, and taken over by a simple virus, uh, so-called quote-unquote simple virus, you know, we realize that viruses really can call the shots here. So I, I do think of it from a phage-centric point of view. But when it's integrated in the bacterial DNA, it can be really more of a symbiont that, that needs to sort of live in harmony with the bacteria. And by making it stronger to, uh, or by helping it cause disease even, it can really, you know, make its host uh, more fit, which is all, all it really cares about. 
I don't know. Does anyone use the term phageome? You know, I've heard that bacteria have not just one phage, but they can have hundreds or thousands of different kinds. And that's right. You know, if you if you look at a bacteria in one set of conditions versus in another set, like E. coli in my gut versus E. coli in a stream or something, sure, I would think they would have like radically different phageomes. And is anyone studying how the phageome? I don't know, modulates the bacterial's immunity, its metabolites, its its living circumstance. Yeah, all of the above. It's a great question. It's funny. They're both the situation you just painted of, you know, uh, cousin microbes living in two different environments. Do they have different prophages? Do they have different phages that prey upon them? The answer is both yes and no. You know, in some cases, radically different phages are found in different environments that infect the same host. In other cases, almost identical phages can be found coexisting with those hosts that are in, in different environments. So the phageome or the virome is, is um, hard to put your finger on because it can be quite dynamic, quite transient, and also have you know, feature members that are both conserved with what you expect to see, but also totally you know, out of nowhere, something almost alien you know, in that it's so new with respect to its sequence. So, you know, that, that's one answer. That your question about how phages are modulating all of these various bacterial attributes is a great one. I mean, certainly metabolism is a huge one. And this is really, there's a handful of papers that, uh, on studying this in the ocean where bacteria and their phages, the, the phage population can really provide totally different metabolic cassettes that help bacteria do all kinds of different things, even phages that carry photosynthetic genes that, that are introduced into cyanobacteria. There are so many ways that phages, if you just think of them as vectors, as vehicles for genes from one organism to the next, it's essentially infinite. There's, there's no gene that a phage can't take and move into a new host. And if it makes that new host better over evolutionary time, well, then we'll end up seeing, you know, an example of a phage that made its host stronger and we'll be talking about it. So, yeah, the answer is, uh, you know, whether it's been shown or not, I, I believe what you're saying, that these phage populations can do essentially anything and move essentially any gene from, from one place to another. Has anyone been able to sequence any significant part of the phageome of a given bacteria? Absolutely. Any? Yeah. yeah. That, and there are a handful of bacteria that are biased, are heavily focused on here, mostly human pathogens and human-associated microbes that, that people like to work on. We certainly have, for some bacteria, hundreds of phage genomes have been sequenced or more that, that are either prophages or free-floating phages. Whether the, a phageome has been sequenced in the sense of like a gut, you know, gut community, that's also been done uh, now quite extensively where, where researchers are focusing not on the microbes in the gut, but on the viruses in the gut and intentionally preparing their samples in such a way that they sequence only the viruses and they find that's mostly phage. And so there have been, there's been a lot of sequencing efforts towards the, the human gut virome. And so from that, we got a lot of phages we've never, we don't really know necessarily what their host is. We don't necessarily know how important they are, but we know they're there. And so that's sort of the next step is to figure out what they're doing and, and which ones are common and which ones are, are more transient. But I mean, when it comes to prophages, mm-hmm. if they're infecting a population of bacteria, I would think there's differences in that. So essentially, like if I have E. coli in my gut, I don't really just have one type of E. coli. I probably right. have hundreds or thousands of kinds. So, and, and I don't know the differences in abilities between all these E. coli, these with these prophages and then these without how different are they? And do they all act in concert still? And, you know, it's, yeah, for any it given just makes you wonder if these are like swarm organisms because of the different <laughs> yeah. phenotype, you know? For any given species, and I, I just heard a talk on this last week that was more, I, I would have agreed with what you said about how many different E. coli, quote unquote E. coli you might have in your gut at one time. 
This talk suggested, though, that it was less than you would think and that there were sort of sweeps of uh, particular E. coli sequence types that could dominate the niche because it is, a, it is a specific niche and then they compete with each other. And probably their prophage population helps decide their, com- their competitive index, basically, with the other E. coli that are there. And that it actually, instead of thousands of E. coli, it's probably more a single or double digit as far as different strains go. And, you know, whether that's dictated in big part due to their prophages is not totally clear, but certainly strains with more prophages will both be more resistant to attack from other phages. And they also have a weapon that they can sort of spit out at their neighbors, and that is that they can actually produce phages that attack their neighbors. Uh, so so I, I would suspect that, you know, the ability of, of a bacterium to be immune to phage attack, which can be dictated by its immune systems and by its prophages, will really be heavily impacted by the integrated phage population that it has. In the gut, it's like a game of Othello or Go. You know, you have uh, certain bacteria that have these, these phages that have changed them, and their goal is to convert others of their kind. You know, like you turn over the tiles, you surround them, they turn white or black. I think the it would be less of a goal for the bacteria and more of a goal for the phage. You know, if they can spread, and I use the word goal loosely, but if they can spread, if phages can spread through a population and find naive microbes that will take them on, you know, they will absolutely do that. And we're now realizing that phages have some mechanisms like this quorum sensing story to decide whether to be lytic or lysogenic. And if the getting's good, they'll be lytic and they'll replicate and they'll move on to the next host. And if the host numbers are dwindling, they'll become lysogenic and just go dormant and that they can kind of decide, you know, when to do that. And so that's where I think the phages really are, are dominant here. And the bacteria are sort of just their vehicles and we are just the vehicles for the bacteria and the phage. And so that the, you know, infected bacteria might have less of a goal for disseminating their phages, but the phages will, will make it happen if it's, if it's possible. I did a series for a, a book on viruses, and one question I want to ask that, that probably applies to you, if there was a bacteria that we sucked out all the contents, or it was just so defective to the point that the bacteria was really just kind of like a husk, and a phage you know, attempted to enter, do you think that it would sense something's wrong and stop at a certain point of entry? Or do you think it just mechanically would continue to the end and end up uh-huh. in like an empty, empty house? That's a cool question. Well, it depends what you've left behind, I I suppose. Some phages are very autonomous. They're very independent, and they don't require much from the host. Almost every phage, though, requires, let's say, ribosomes from the host. They require nucleotides often that they need to either produce from some precursor or or, uh, steal from the bacterial DNA. So that experiment will really depend on how much you suck out of it. Do bacteriophages need every gene in a bacteria to be there? No, they, they definitely don't but they need some physical, <laughs> you know, wall or membrane probably to hold them in while they build themselves. And they need, you know, ribosomes and nucleotides. And some of them need RNA polymerases and DNA polymerases, and some of them don't. And that's really variable. So you, the thought experiment is a cool one. You know, what are the minimal parts that a given phage needs? And some phages, like a really jumbo one that we work on, it's a huge phage and it does almost everything on its own but it still needs ribosomes and it still needs a handful of other things, even though it's, it's pretty independent when it comes to uh, transcription and, and replication. So it's a cool idea, uh, but phages won't replicate just inside of a little bubble. You know, they do need a biological material of some sort. Yeah, I just wonder if we're able to make a bacteria with you know, the membrane fidelity is, is as close as possible, but there's nothing in it. Like at, at what point would the phage, you know, land on it, let's yeah. just start to fuse and then abort or not abort? 
you have to build it up with the right parts, I suppose, which is, which is the question, I guess, is how, you know, what, how much stuff does it take to get to the right parts? And I, I think the, the translation component, the ability to pump out protein is really what, you know, phages are using their bacterial host essentially to pump out DNA, RNA, and protein. It's a, it's a central dogma 101. That's all it needs for uh, from the bacterium. So as long as it had the ingredients to do those three things, then the phage would be golden. What do you think is the sensory apparatus of a bacteria or a phage? Do you think mm-hmm. it has any sensory apparatus? Well, in the sense that, yes, I think if, if, if sensory can be defined as, as sort of input-output, you know, the ability to detect something and change, you know, behavior and or, in this case, gene expression as a result, yes, absolutely. I mean, bacteria have literal sensing mechanisms of touch. They have, they have pili and flagella and and those are sensory organelles that, that um, tell it when it's near a surface or on a surface. They have the ability to chemotax and, and move t- towards or away from chemicals, from oxygen, from even magnets. There are magnetotoxic bacteria that can move towards or away from magnets. So, you know, the, the, yes, bacteria absolutely are, are sensory beings. Um, phages also are. I mean, they've got tails that detect the receptor on the cell surface, and that triggers them to inject their DNA. Um, they also have the ability to sense some aspect of the intracellular environment, that, which is just, you know, proteins doing what they do, but it helps the phage decide whether to be lytic or lysogenic. And, um, you know, the, these things are referred to as decisions, not because they're neurological, but because they are input-output, um, you know, input-output mechanisms that are built into biology at all, at all kingdoms of life. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, the, the senses are a great analogy for phage and bacteria. What I mean is they're acting on biological information, you know, the yeah. concentration of a certain chemical, Absolutely. et cetera, and they're acting upon that. You know, they're forming some kind of, again, I'm anthropomorphizing, but they're forming some kind of action to take that depends on the information they're taking in, which is ambiguous. So. Yeah, 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 totally, uh, uh, totally happening for both bacteria and for, and for phages. So what, what's the future for your research? What are you trying to figure out and understand about uh, – phage interactions with bacteria or CRISPR cas system? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of questions. I mean, we're, we're focused on it, on it. I guess I could, I could lump it into two broad areas. One is continuing to understand how phages avoid uh, CRISPR cas immunity. We've worked for many years now on anti CRISPR proteins, which we're still heavily investigating, but we're also studying new phages that, that are resisting, avoiding, evading, inhibiting CRISPR in ways that are not through the simple production of an inhibitor of protein, um, including this jumbo phage I mentioned that has a new way to, to prevent CRISPR from attacking it. So we're, we're focusing a lot on, on different phage families and understanding how they deal with, with immune systems like CRISPR and restriction enzymes. Um, and then the other big bucket is that we're working on, on a lot of the new uh, bacterial immune systems that have been discovered just in the last two or three years where we're realizing since CRISPR, there have been a couple of labs that have really pioneered the, the discovery of, of new bacterial immune systems. This was led mostly uh, by a lab at the NIH. Uh, Kuhn and Makarova uh, have, have proposed that there are many more immune systems out there, and, and the Park lab in, in Israel has, has really been a leader in, in discovery. Um, so we now realize that bacteria have suites of immune genes, and we're working on both characterizing some of the recently discovered ones, understanding how phages co-evolve with them, but also on, on discovering some of our own uh, our own systems. So, so those are sort of the two big buckets that we're focused on right now. 
Yeah, just as a quick uh, hint forward, what, what are some of the other bacterial immune systems that you've discovered? Sure. Yeah, we haven't discovered any yet, at least nothing that we've published. And it's hard to, it's hard to discover a new immune system. The, the leader who's done this super well, the, the SARC lab, uh, has, has discovered so many that, that are either of unknown mechanisms or that we know very little about. And loosely, there, there are a lot that seem to be uh, so-called abortive systems, which basically means, and this is, it goes back to your sensory question, which basically means that bacteria detect that they are infected, and the way they detect that infection is, is varied. They then trigger some effector, which is also varied, and how they trigger it is varied as well. But they do something to kill themselves, and so they essentially just kill the, their, their own bacteria or, or they enter a dormant state where now the phage can't replicate. And the mechanisms with how they do this are really diverse and interesting, but it also must be very tightly regulated because this is a sense, essentially a suicide switch that bacteria have. And so, of course, you don't want that to be too loose. So, so that's, that's a really fascinating new area of biology. And there also probably are new systems that actually cut the phage DNA, but that's not totally clear yet, uh, you know, like CRISPR. Um, but there's probably more out there, more even CRISPR-like systems that, that figure out how to cut phage DNA through other mechanisms. Oh, very interesting. Mm-hmm. So what's what way can people find out more about your research? Where can they go? Uh, two places. One is Twitter. I, I, uh, I tweet and retweet lots of work from my colleagues and from uh, the great trainees in my lab um, uh, at Joe Bondi Denemy. And uh, on my lab website, we, we post all of our work. All of our PDFs are there for easy and open access um, for anyone to look at uh, uh, lab.ucsf.edu. Um, and so that, that's, where, that's where we do most of our work. And we also post all of our, almost all of our papers on BioArchive, which is a preprint server that allows you know, anyone to read, read our work, which is really changing how people disseminate science. So, so those are the great places. Well, very good. Joseph, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.